You know, the churches in the United States today are so removed from what Jesus started. It just, it breaks my heart. Do we preach the truth? Well, I can't speak for any other church but this one. And I'm going to tell you, this pastor does his best to make sure that everything that he says is according to the Word of God. Amen. That's why sometimes we have a lot of verses, you know. The only thing, and I pointed out from Ephesians 5, the only thing that is going to sanctify this church is the Word of God. Amen. I said, I love fellowships. I mean, you can tell I like to eat. I love the music. I like to sing. I feel sorry for those people who sit around me in the choir who have to listen to it, but I sing and sing loud. B, loudly, it's an adverb. Okay. But the Lord said it's the washing of water by the word that's going to sanctify his churches. Amen. And so that makes what I'm doing now very important to us. And I looked at Sister Sharon and I said, probably Brother Truman can relate to this. I don't know if anybody else can, but I said, did you ever have one of those messages that you just, Lord, why this one? Why do you want me to prepare? Why do I need to preach? The, who is this for? What is this for? You know? And so I have three points in the message. We're going to emphasize mainly the first one about prayer. And that's why I wanted Joni to sing, has anybody talked to Jesus lately? But we're going to emphasize prayer and then we're going to see some of the people who are opposed to God and then we're going to see what relationship we have with God. So turn to the fifth psalm. Psalm 5. I hear people call them chapters. Well, it's a psalm. It's, it's by itself. It stands by itself. You know, you go to the, one of the Apostle Paul's letters, and of course we know that the chapters and verses weren't there in the original autographs, as they call them, the original writings. Those were put in by translators and, and so forth to help us be able to identify verses and refer to those. But you can just take the fifth psalm and let it stand by itself. It's not dependent on any other psalm. And so it's 12 verses, the short verses, I came across this psalm in our Bible reading and reading through the Bible. And again, I prayed, Lord, why? I don't, you know, help me to understand what, why I'm preaching this. You say, you don't know, preacher? Well, Psalm 5, verse 1, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. 
But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. Now I know that there are people in this world who practice what we call sometimes set forms of prayer. Maybe they have a prayer book or they have memorized prayers, prayers that they have committed to memory. And many times those come from here up. And praying ought to be from here out, okay? You'll find no justification for the head up praying in the book of Psalms. There's no mechanical praying here. There's no just saying, okay, it's time to pray. Now lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep and that sort of thing. It's heartfelt praying. When you have a burning concern about something, when something really bothers you, folks, it comes from the heart, not just from the head. There's something I've been praying about for some time now. And I'll even get up in the middle of the night or wake up in the middle of the night and I'll pray about it. And it's not just saying, oh, I need to mention this to the Lord again. But it's coming from the heart. It's pouring a heart out to God. And that's when prayer gets straight to the point. You know how sometimes we sort of want to tiptoe around the issue maybe when we pray to God. No, prayer needs to go straight to the point. And when it's a real concern, when it's a real burden, folks, prayer will go straight to the point. Amen. By the way, let me mention, I didn't intend three weeks ago to start a series on prayer. We just preached from the prayer of Nehemiah. And then last week, took eight verses out of the 119th Psalm, took a stanza out of that Psalm, and guess what? It was a prayer. It was the request of the psalmist. And then we come to this Psalm, and we have this prayer. You know, again, much of our modern day praying is just merely saying prayers. Amen. Like, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep the psalmist knew how to pray. And that's what we need today in the Lord's churches. We need people who know how to pray. I don't mean just say words before God, but get to the heart of God, express their, their needs, their desires before God. That praying that comes again from the heart, not from the head. The psalmist prayed early. We're going to see that. He prayed audibly. You don't always have to pray audibly, but sometimes it might be good to pray audibly. He prayed thoughtfully. He prayed earnestly. You remember, he's, David said, morning and evening and at noon will I pray. Will I pray and cry aloud? He prayed orderly prayers. We're going to talk about that. He prayed daily. He prayed expectantly. And he prayed reverently and wisely. That's how we ought to pray. In Psalm 5, his prayer begins with words. And it deepens into size. He's pouring out his heart before God. And then it rises into cries to God. He says, hear my cry. He prayed with purpose. This is a psalm of David. Now we're not absolutely sure when this psalm was written either. When Saul, remember when King Saul was after David and Saul was chasing him. Or when Absalom, his son, rebelled against him and was trying to take the kingdom away and even chasing his own father. But in either case, whether Saul or Absalom, folks, David had absolutely no option but to pray. 
And that ought to be our first option. That ought to be the first thing that we do. Sometimes God will bring us to the point where we say, I can't do this. Lord, I can't do it. I can't continue. I cannot accomplish this by myself. I cannot do this by myself. And what we have to do then is we have to say, God, help me. You take charge. And that's when we realize that our last resort ought to be our first resort. Ought to be our first resolve to pray. And we need to pray like David. First of all, I said we're going to spend a lot of time on the first few verses. And if we have time, we'll cover the last few. I'm not as interested. I'm sorry. Does this sound bad? Not as interested in getting to the last few verses as I am these first few. If it sounds bad, y'all forgive me. Lord, forgive me if it sounds bad. But, and the whole psalm is, is inspired of God. And so it's all good, okay? But the request of the righteous right here in the first three verses Notice how David addresses God in these verses. His prayer is based upon his relationship with God. Guess what? Our prayer is based upon our relationship with God. And many times our relationship, or all of the time, our relationship gives us the privilege of prayer. Because you're a child of God, because you at some point repented toward God, put your faith in Christ and were saved, the Word of God says you can now come to God. Now, let, having said that, let me say this. Our fellowship affects our power in prayer. Amen. Relationship gives us the privilege. Fellowship gives us the power. So there are a lot of people who can pray who have the privilege of prayer, but because they're out of fellowship with God, they pray weak, ineffective prayers. Amen. And so many of our prayers... Here I go. Oh, Lord, give me, get me, do for me, right? They're like a child. Lord, give me, or mommy and daddy, give me, get me, do for me, buy for me. I want this, I want this, and this, and this. And it's like we're there just many times. Parents are just there to do things for their children, give things to their children. A lot of times we think that's what God's there for, just to give us what we want, just to, we can lay out our, our materialistic, our worldly desires before him. And you know, because I'm a child of God, he's got to answer, right? Not necessarily. Boy, I'm getting to meddling already, aren't I? First of all, he addresses God as Lord, Yahweh. You know what that is? That's a self-existent, self-sufficient being in whom I have complete trust and who I am bound to adore. And the idea is the Lord who is to come. He's coming before God and he says, you're my Lord. You are my master. And then look at what he says. My king and my God. He ought to be both to us. God ought to be our king. What does a king do? He rules. He ought to be our God. What do you do with a God? You worship him. You bow down before him. You fall down before him. And so we ought to be saying, you are God. There is no other God. Everything that men call gods are just useless except for God, except for Jehovah God, except the God of the heavens. And Lord, I just lay my life before you. I lay tomorrow before you, next week before you, the rest of my life before you. You are my king, and I want to do the will of my king. Do you realize, and I've forgotten the song, my country tis of thee. Do you realize that there's a king over America? 
That last stanza ends with great God our king. If you'll look that up. We have a king. And he is King Jesus. He is God. He is the one to whom I have sworn allegiance. He's the one under whose protection I put myself. He's my king. By the way, you notice he says, my God and my king. That's personal, folks. See, there's a reason I ask about near to the heart of God. I hope I am near to my wife's heart. I think I am. Yeah, I guess I am. <laughs> so I, I have an idea of what it means to be near to the heart of someone. Can you imagine that? Just think of whoever's heart it is that you're the nearest to, you're the dearest to, and think of being that in that relationship, that fellowship, that closeness with God. I am near to the heart of God. He knows my thoughts. I know his thoughts. I, I'm that close to him. We walk hand in hand. A child of God's never alone. I don't care if no one's around for a hundred miles. A child of God is not alone because he has the Holy Spirit residing in him. He's got God above him. He's got Jesus walking with him. How can he be alone, right? But there's something more than personal here. You know what David's saying? We have an exclusive relationship. My wife and I have an exclusive relationship. I like my friends. You know, I have male friends and I have female friends. That, you know, all of my friends are right out here. You know, outside of this church, I don't have a whole lot of friends. I don't have a whole lot of preacher friends. And I can talk to you and visit with you and joke with you and have that kind of relationship. But this is an exclusive relationship right here. And David said, I have that kind of relationship with God. He said, there's not anybody else to whom I'm going to take my petitions there are no other gods. You are my God. Forget about anything or anyone else. Lord, I serve you. And then the thoughts carried forward in verse 2. He says, for unto thee will I pray. What he's saying is I'm not praying to anybody but you, Lord. I'm not praying to the government. I'm not praying to the God of fame and fortune. I'm not praying to the God of chance or happenstance or the God of good luck. By the way, I don't believe in good luck. I believe in God's blessings. People say good luck. You know, I've talked before about dad's accident that he had. And a nurse told him in the hospital one time, said, you were lucky. He said, no, ma'am, I wasn't lucky. God took care of me. And that ought to be our attitude. Luck, no such thing as luck. God is the one who takes care of us. Now, listen, do we really pray to God like David did here in verse 1? Look what he says. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Or do we pray to ourselves? You know, when the Pharisee and the publican were praying, remember what it says in Luke 18 about the Pharisee? He said it prayed within himself. He wasn't praying to God. He stood there in the temple bowed his head like he was some holy man. And then he said, now, Lord, this is what I think he was saying. You sure are lucky to have me. I mean, I tithe and, you know, I do all of these things for you that I do. And aren't you fortunate to have me on your side? 
He prayed within himself. And remember the publican, he wouldn't even look up his eyes. He sank to his knees. He hit himself on the chest. He just said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I don't have that much to offer you except me. Now you take me and you use me, but that's all I have to give you. Too many times I think we pray as if God were out there in outer space somewhere and we got to try to float a prayer up to him. When you talk to someone who is near to you, you talk like they're close to you. You get intimate in your conversation with them. And that's the way we ought to be with God. God is a person and he is personal and our prayers ought to be personal with God. We need to reverence his holiness. We better reverence his holiness. By the way, here's something I've learned this week. I don't know why I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't bothered to learn it. I hadn't bothered to think about it before. But you know when the seraphims and, and all are flying there in heaven and they've got, how many wings do they have? Six. And with two they cover their eyes. And with two they cover their feet. And with two they're flying. You know what that is? This is reverence. I'm in the presence of God. Covering the feet is respect. Flapping the wings, flying, that's service. Reverence, respect, and service. We ought to reverence his holiness, but as children we can be close to him. What does Romans chapter 8 verse 15 say? For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. Never went to my dad and said, Father, I would like to use the car this evening because, no. Hey, Dad, can, uh, can I do this? Can I do that? Had that relationship there. And that's what God wants. Reverence him. Respect his holiness, but have that closeness with him. And in verses 1 and 2, David approaches God and says, Three different things the same way. He says, give ear to my words, consider my meditation, give heed to the voice of my cry. Give ear literally means to broaden out the ear. You know what it's a picture of? You've seen me do it. Somebody in the back is offering a prayer request and I'm going, well, I, you know. Now God doesn't do this because he can't hear. I do it because someone's not speaking loudly enough, right? I mean, that's my excuse and I'm sticking with it. But give ear. Lord, broaden out your Lord, cup your hand behind your ear so you can hear what I'm saying. And then he says, consider, understand, regard. Meditation talks about his complaint. He talks about what he's bringing before God. Lord, give ear and then consider, understand what I'm saying, and then hearken. Means to prick up the ears. I talked about that last week. And I talked about Loconius when the jingle, jingle on the cameras goes off and his ears go boom. He knows somebody's coming to the front door or to the garage door or Joni's coming home or something. Somebody said this is called Hebrew parallelism. He's repeating the same thing three times. He's saying, here it is. Here's my desire. And David is crying out to God. He's saying, please listen to me. Please hear me. See, I think we've got this attitude that I'm a child of God. God's just got to hear me. I love what the psalmist said when he said, keep me from presumptuous sins. And I think just saying, I'm going to pray and God's going to have to hear it and God's going to have to give me what I want. That's a presumptuous sin, folks. That is a presumptuous sin. 
So David's pleading. Lord, listen to me. Why did he repeat it? It's not that God's having trouble hearing. And it's not that David's trying to get his attention. He is stressing the importance of the prayer that he is about to make. Lord, I need you to hear this. You know, this has affected my praying here of late. I don't just go immediately and say, Lord, now here's my prayer. Lord, hear me. Lord, listen to me. Hear what I ask, please. David understood that if his prayers weren't heard by God, it's just so many words. It's just useless speech. It'd be the equivalent of just making a wish. If God doesn't hear your prayers, and that's all that some people have. It's an encouragement to us to go to God continually. Go before him day in and day out and throughout the, the day because, get this, prayer is a form of worship. Amen. Do you know that prayer is not, does not inform God of anything? God already knows. We're going to pray for our daily needs. No, God knew you needed it in eternity's past before you were ever born. So we're not informing God. What are we doing? We're worshiping God. Lord, I know you're the giver of life. Lord, I know you're the giver of all things that we need for life. And I'm coming before you because I know that I can't do this myself and I have to depend upon you. And so I want to bring my worship before you. And we shouldn't just worship God three times a week. I think some Baptist folks have gotten that attitude. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, boy, I worship God. Now I can live like the world the rest of the week. No, you can't. We ought to worship God daily and we ought to worship God continually on a daily basis. You know why we exist? We exist to worship and to fellowship with God. That's why he saved us. That's why we exist. And listen, from drinking our morning coffee, with thankfulness, by the way. I mean, I'm a, every morning I'm thankful for my coffee. Yeah, and I'm thankful we got one of those that makes the coffee while we're still in bed. Boy, up, uh, stop by to turn the computer on and straight to the coffee pot. I'm not hooked on caffeine, you know. But I do thank the Lord for coffee. But being thankful for our morning coffee, how about this singing songs of praise in the car while we're driving to work? You know, we ought to be doing that. Not only that, fulfilling our work with excellence and integrity. You know, one of the forerunners of modern-day Baptists was the Waldenses. And it was said of them that they were hard and dependable workers. That you could depend upon one of them if you... And that's what we ought to be. That kind of a worker, that kind of a laborer for God. But then how about this one? Dealing with difficult people with grace. (laughs) Even your pastor, you know. You got to listen to that preacher again. Well, have some grace, all right. But dealing with difficult people with grace. Sometimes you have bosses or co-workers that are just pains, okay? <laughs> just Sometimes you got a pastor that way. But sometimes you got these folks that are just pains. But we have to deal with them because we are God's people and because we are children of God and because we're representing God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to deal with them with Grace, it can be done, all of it, with Christ in our minds and the goal of bringing glory to him. 
Prayer is not just asking God for things. It's not a child making out a Christmas list. It's not a way to get our will done in heaven. Prayer is a way to get heaven's will done on this earth. But starting off the day in prayer is crucial for a child of God. I want to share this with you. This may not be the place I'd intended to, but I didn't bring it. Yeah, I did okay. Somebody gave this to me years ago, and I love it. It's called The Difference. It's by Alan Grant. I got up early one morning and rushed right into the day. I had so much to accomplish that I didn't have time to pray. Problems just tumbled about me and heavier became each task. Why doesn't God help me, I wondered. He answered, you didn't ask. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day toiled on, gray and bleak. I wondered why God didn't show me, he explained, you didn't seek. So determined to be in God's presence, I used all my keys at the lock. God gently and lovingly chided my child. You didn't knock. I woke up early this morning and paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to take time to pray. Start the day off in prayer. And when we start the day off in prayer, I like what one individual said. He said, when we wake up, first thing, it shouldn't be, where's my phone? Where's my glasses? Where's my coffee? It ought to be, thank you, Lord, for waking me up this morning. God is the giver of life. He is the one who wakes us up. So verse 2, he says, I told you we're going to spend a long time on this. Verse 2, he says, hearken unto the voice of my cry. That word cry is interesting. And it presents an English word I'd never heard before. Halloo. H-A-L-L-O-O. Anybody ever heard that? Well, I didn't know what it was either. Do you know what it is? It's a cry for help. In fact, it's a cry or a shout to attract attention or to give encouragement. And in this particular instance, to give encouragement, or in the way we use it many times, you take dogs out hunting. And you shout, Halloo! to get them to go on the hunt. I've never, you know, I've never been on an English fox hunt, so I don't, but that's what it says. So he says, my cry, my, my halloo, I hallooed in the hope that somebody might hear my shouts and come rescue me. And the psalmist is saying, God, I'm crying out. I need rescued. It's an earnest desire. Earnest praying is with earnest desire. You can't pray earnestly without desire. Desire is not a wish. You know what desire is? It is a deep-seated craving. It is a longing. Now, do you crave being near to the heart of God? Do you long to be near to the heart of God? Not just have a distant relationship. We have some family members. I have some cousins. They don't live around here. We, you know, we're Facebook friends and every once in a while we might see each other. Back in the fall we went to my aunt's 90th birthday party and saw them and hugged necks and we probably won't see them again until somebody's funeral, you know. Well, I love them, they're my cousins, but you know, we don't have this intimate relationship, this close relationship. So a lot of people have that relationship with God. I might go and visit him once a month at church, but other than that, well, you know, he, I know he's there and so forth. But this, this is a desire. It is a deep longing. Desire goes before prayer. In fact, prayer is created by intensified desire. 
I told you I've been praying for something. And the desire is there and it just gets more and more intense and I'm waiting on God to give me an answer, yes or no, and we're going to talk about God's answers in just a moment. But the deeper the desire, the stronger the prayer. Prevailing prayer comes from a heart that is so full it just erupts into tears. Listen, I've wept praying before God at times. That's how intense the desire, that's how intense the prayer just go back to James chapter 5. We talked about it last week. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The active prayer, the powerful prayer, the prayer that is in action. We get a picture of a strong prayer, not a listless, weak prayer. We get a picture of a prayer that means something. It's heartfelt supplication used to, de- uh, to describe this kind of prayer. Again, earnest praying is praying with desire. Without desire, it's just a meaningless mumble of words. That's all it is. And oftentimes, what many people are doing when they're, quote, praying, they're just speaking words they're not even sure of to a God they don't even know. To a God they're not close to. Praying with no heart is a waste of time. I didn't get any amens on that. I didn't expect any. Praying with no heart is just, it ought to be avoided like a pestilence. Lord, I don't want to pray without my heart in it. Lord, I don't want to pray and just be meaningless. Without desire, there's not any burden of soul. There's no sense of need. There's no holding on to God with a desperate grip if you don't have a desire in prayer. I thought of Jacob when he wrestled with the angel. What did he say? The last thing Jacob said in wrestling with the angel, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, there's a lot of evidence that that was probably a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jacob had a hold of him. He said, I'm not letting go until I get your blessings. Maybe we should reverently pray, Lord, I'm going to keep making requests until you answer me. I didn't say threatening God. I said reverently making that request of God. Now, with all of this in mind, and I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot or embarrass anybody But when we pray in a worship service, we lead in prayer in a worship service. What's the desire? How deep is the desire? Are our hearts really there to say, Lord, bless with your word. Touch our hearts with your word. And notice David started his day with prayer and meditation in the word. Asking God to give ear. And hearken and consider his prayer, David expressed confidence that God would hear him. Look at what he says. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning. Lord, I'm going to pray in the morning, and you're going to hear me. That word hear means to hear intelligently, uh, to hear diligently. It has the idea of giving heed to. Lord, I'm going to pray in the morning, and you're going to listen to me. I know that. I know you. I know what you are like. And Lord, I'm going to pray, and you're going to listen. And David prayed with the expectation that God would hear him and that God would answer his requests. Hey, we ought to pray that way. Are we praying for the growth of this church, for God to add to this church? Not for us to add to it, but for God to add to this church. Are we praying with that kind of diligence and that kind of desire that David had? And in the morning, at dawn, literally, at the break of day, As the day breaks forth, literally is what the word, the idea of the word is. I said, instead of saying, where's my phone? Where's my coffee? Lord, thank you for giving me up. Lord, praise you for getting me up. 
David indicated also that his prayer would be organized. What do you mean organized? Look at it, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. That word direct means to set in a row. It means to arrange and put in order. It has the picture of offering the sacrifices. You take the wood, you have the fire, you place the animal. And so David says, I'm just going to have an ordered prayer life. When I pray, it's going to be an orderly prayer. It's not going to be a shotgun prayer. You know, like that. It's going to be an ordered prayer before you, Lord. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us how to pray, didn't he? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There's praise to God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a desire for God's kingdom and the coming of Christ. Give us this day our daily bread. He's making requests. Forgive us our debts as our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's a prayer for God's forgiveness. And there's a prayer for God's guidance in our lives. And then he closes and he praises God once again. We open with praise. We close with praise. And in between, there's our prayers for forgiveness and requests and, and all of these things. And David says his prayers were ordered unto thee. See, we go to God. We go to God through Jesus Christ, don't we? First Timothy chapter 2, there's one God, one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. We go to God through Jesus, okay? So we pray to the Father. Jesus takes our prayers. And then he says, I'll look up. It has the idea of leaning forward. It has the idea of looking off into the distance. You know what that is? That's expectation. God, I'm going to pray with the expectation that you are going to answer my prayers. And when we pray, we ought to expect God to answer our prayers. Amen. Now, I didn't say we ought to expect him to answer with a yes. There are three ways that God answers prayers. Yes, no, and wait. See, I read this somewhere one time. It said, God answers our prayers in the way that we would ask if we were wiser. I like that. See, we don't know what to ask for. Most of our praying these days is for us. You know, it's sort of like people voting today. They vote for what's going to benefit them. They don't vote for the person that's going to best benefit the country or going to be a godly person or whatever. They say, well, this, this is what I want, and they're, you know, they support things that I like, and so I'm going to vote for them. A lot of times our praying is just that way. Lord, here's what I want. And so I'm going to just bring that before you. That's not what he's talking about. Expect God's answer and let God answer in a way that's best for us. Look, I'm like everyone else. When I pray about something and God says, wait a while. And I tell you what, sometimes it seems like a long time that God's saying, wait for an answer. And I'm thinking, Lord, I really need this. Yeah, I'm not going to put a time limit on God. But I'm thinking, Lord, I, I, I really need this. And you know what? Sometimes I get frustrated and discouraged. But I shouldn't. This is God. He's dealing with me and he's saying, you, you just need to wait a while. And the psalmist said, Lord, I'm going to pray and I'm going to expect your answer. Micah 7, 7. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And this is the part of prayer that tests our faith. Lord, here's my request. And God says, wait. 
Am I going to keep trusting God? Am I going to have faith in God? Or am I going to try, out, uh, try to go out and get ahead of God and do things myself? Wait on the Lord, the scripture says. How often do we anticipate God's activity in our lives? Am I praying prayers of expectation or prayers of exasperation? Which am I doing? It's so easy to just leave our prayers at a place of crying before God and just sort of uh, be desperate about it and forget about the expectation that God's going to come through. Folks, I've seen God come through so many times in my life. We've seen God come through in the life of this church. Amen. We've seen God bless us as a church. And remember, God's delays aren't denials. Just because God says, wait a minute, that doesn't mean he's saying no. You know what? I used to do with Will and Aaron. They'd ask me about something, go somewhere or whatever, and I'd say, we'll see. <laughs> ask me later. You know what I'm doing? I'm doing the same thing God does when he says, Wait. And sometimes what we'll see is, uh, we're going to watch you for a minute and see how you act. Right? Now, you cannot earn God's blessings. Amen. I cannot earn God's blessings. But we can live in such a way so as to eliminate ourselves from some of his blessings. Okay? David talks about coming before God morning and morning, morning after morning, waiting in expectation. It's difficult to keep from just mouthing the words of our prayer without losing the belief that God's going to answer our prayers. Okay? We need to remember that the greatest of the conditions of answered prayer is faith. Jesus spoke again and again of faith. All right, that's the request of the psalmist. Very quickly, the revulsion of the rebellious. That's what he talks about in verses 4 through 6. There's some people not going to get their prayers answered. And some of them may not be, or some of them may be God's people. But first he talks about the character of God. And that is the basis of our prayers, of our faith, and of our worship. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. Wickedness talks about that which is morally wrong. He talks about sin. God does not take pleasure in sin. We had this discussion in Sunday school this morning. But so many people want to get, uh, make a profession of faith. I'm not going to say they get saved. I don't know their hearts. But they want to make a profession of faith, walk an aisle, go through the baptistry, become a church member, and go out and live like the world. God doesn't take pleasure in that. Amen. Not a bit. In fact, we talked about the bride of Christ in relation to that. And I don't think some old guy that just, I'm going to pick on guys, some guy that just does that, and then never witnesses, never prays, never lives for the Lord, never darkens a church door, though he may be saved, is qualified to be in the bride of Christ with people who have faithfully served God. I believe God has a standard. You can disagree with me if you want, but that's what I believe. God's not pleased with sin. In fact, I like this. Somebody said it this way. God won't socialize with the wicked or invite evil over as a house guest. It's not going to happen. James says... If you're tempted to sin, that's not God doing it. Okay? 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says that in him, they're talking about in God, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. There's not even a speck of darkness in God. There's no sin in God. So for a child of God who bears the DNA of his heavenly Father, to live in sin is a disgrace to his heavenly Father. 
So David says, the foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Foolish talks about those who rave with foolish conceit. He's talking about a lifestyle. They're not going to continue. He said, here's why. Because God hates all the workers of iniquity. Now, you know, I've tried to mitigate that word hate, but literally it means abhor, hold an abomination, show his abhorrence by punishing. I listened to a sermon last night. So we've got to remember there's some things God hates. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. Okay? God hates sin. Psalm 14, verse 1. Psalm 53, verse 1. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. And their sin will be their ruin. They deny God, and so that, that's going to be their ruin. Verse 6, he declares how God would deal with them. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. You know what leasing is? Falsehood. Lies. God doesn't care for liars, doesn't like liars, not going to put up with liars. Thou shalt destroy them that speak least. Destroy means cause them to perish, cause them to ruin. Again, this is something that God hates. God hates lying. God is a God of truth. God hates lying. So he's going to destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. The bloody man is one who sheds blood. Just go over and read there in Proverbs the things that God hates. And one of them is feet that are swift in running to shed innocent blood. He hates that. And then a deceitful man. What's a deceitful man? It's a fraudulent individual. He uses his position that he has to defraud other people. Boy, I tell you what, some of these guys on TV are going to answer one of these days, aren't they? Oh, you send me $100, God will send you 1000 You send me 10 God will send you 100 And all the time, have you ever thought about this? They're up there begging for money. They do that, and they got a Rolex watch on their hands. Well, why don't you just hock your Rolex watch, buddy, and put the money in your, in your treasury? No, you send me money. Fraudulent deceitful. And then there's the corruption of the guilty. Not only the character of God, the corruption of guilty, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. What are they? They're liars. They're leasing. No faithfulness in their mouth. They don't think it's a sin to tell a deliberate lie. Do you know anybody you can't trust? I started to say, I hope we don't have anyone like that here. Used car salesman. You know, anybody you can't trust, there's no faithfulness in their mouth. Our dad used to have an expression about some people like that. He said, they'd rather climb a tree and tell a lie than to stand flat-footed on the ground and tell the truth. And they're just people like that. They just grow up lying, and that's all they can do. They lie, lie, lie. There's no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Matthew Henry said, "Is wickedness itself is very wickedness. The desire of their hearts, their principle motive is to destroy other people. I can't ascend and so I'll bring you down and that'll make me feel above you. Their speech reveals their hearts. Matthew chapter 15. Jesus said this, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart. They defile the man for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. You see somebody that's a liar, you know what they are in heart? They're a liar. You see somebody that's a thief? You know what they are in heart? They're a thief. It comes up out of the heart. 
behavior comes from the heart. That's what we've got to realize. He says their throat's an open sepulcher. Sepulcher. Sister Karen taught me how to say that word. Somebody in seminary said sepulcher, and I bought into it. It's sepulcher, okay? Their throat's an open sepulcher. That is, it, just like the grave is open, ready to receive a body, their throat's open and ready to devour and to swallow people up because there's no truth in them. I've got to hurry on. Verse 10, David prays for God to deal with his enemies and he gives the reason. He says, destroy them, O God, that is pronounce them, treat them like they're guilty, punish them, bring them to ruin, let them fall by their own counsels. In other words, it's a plea to take what they are using against him and to turn it against them. Don't you love it when God does that? Somebody's going to use something against you and God just turns it around. I love that when that happens and David prays for that here and he says, cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. Let that which they do to secure themselves and to do mischief to others be the overruling providence of God to be made a means of their destruction. Just turn it against them, God. You know what David's doing? David is not saying this out of a desire for vengeance, but I can see some there. But here's what David's doing. David's saying, I'm not going to do anything to him. Lord, you take care of it. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And here's the reason. He says, for they have rebelled against thee. David understood this. When the wicked rebel against God's servants, this church, you as members of this church working and witnessing for God, when the wicked rebel against God's servants, they're not just rebelling against you, they're rebelling against God. Right quickly, I've got to get this in, the relation of the redeemed. Verses 7 and 8, right quick, we're going to deal with, in contrast to those who are full of pride, flatter themselves and others, he says this, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. Lord, I'm not coming in like this. Lord, I'm coming in like this. Amen. Bowed before you. I need your mercy. I need the multitude of your mercy. In the abundance of your mercy, I expect to be delivered from mine enemies, but it's not my pride. I'm depending on you. Not because of what I've done, Lord, but because of what you've done. Oh, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. Yeah, why? Well, I go to church and uh, 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 uh. because God himself came to this earth and took on the form of a man and died on the cross, was buried, arose again, he ascended back into heaven. And you, by the mercy of God, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a word lest any man should boast. It, listen, salvation is 100% of God. Amen. Nothing we do. Nothing we say. Well, at least I had the good sense to accept Christ. You wouldn't have if it hadn't been for God. Amen. Obviously, I'm departing a little bit from those of you who have my notes. I'm departing a little bit from that, but that's okay. Not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness and sacrifice can we come into the very throne room of God, folks. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore because of him 
Come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For there's one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. So David says, in thy fear, reverence, respect. You don't hear a lot about reverence in God. You know, and I heard this just in a sermon last night because there's so much emphasis on, oh, God is love, God is love. God. Yes, he is. The character and nature of God is love, 1 John 4, 8. But God is holy Amen. and deserves our reverence and our respect and our fear and our awe. His love, as I've said before, comes out of his holiness. In thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Verse 8, he says, make thy way straight before my face. You know what he's saying? Mark it out, Lord. Lord, I want to know how you want me to live. And it's just like you would mark a line and say, follow this line. He says, just lay it out there before me because that's what I want to do. See, here's what David knew. He knew his enemies were watching him. And if he varied, they were going to accuse him and may even accuse God. He says, I want to be right with God. How many of us, don't raise your hands, how many of us have that desire who would say, Lord, you mark your way out straight before me so I can follow it and I don't want to vary either to the left hand or the right. Lord, I want to follow you. Lord, I want to live for you. If it means letting go of some of the worldliness in my life, let me let go of the worldliness in my life. As a church, we ought to say, Lord, we want to follow you. If it means letting go of some things, we need to let go of them. Anything that detracts, distracts, leads us away from God needs to be let go of. Amen. I'm going to be tired tonight. <laughs> but you know, that ought to be the desire of every child of God. Lord, I want to walk straight down your path. Two more verses and we're through. And everybody said, thank you. Amen, right? Verse 11 names three characteristics that ought to mark the life of a child of God. Let all those that put their trust in thee, first of all, rejoice. Rejoice. People come to church and they look like they just lost their last friend. A worship service is not a funeral service. All right? And a funeral service for somebody who knew Christ as Savior ought to be rejoicing. Amen. Had a lady in our church that had cancer. She was dying. And I asked one of our men, I was just talking to him, and I said, you know, sometimes I go see Sister Judy. I said, I don't, I don't know what to say to her. He said, just tell her you're jealous of her. She's going to get there before you do. <laughs> you know? Rejoice! That's why, you know, I look out and see who's smiling when we're singing. Who's rejoicing? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He keeps me singing. Amen. Why don't we sing and smile? Enjoy it. I told you I've been watching this Messianic rabbi, and he talked about how the feast days, all the feast, seven feast days that God put in Israel, they were times of joy. They were times of rejoicing. Hey, all the Levitical feasts. And you're supposed to be happy. And we're supposed to be happy when we come to church. We ought to look like it. And then let the Word of God cut to our hearts and get right with God and go out happy, right? Ever shout. It's for Brother Tim and Sister Grace. Right? Ever shout for joy. What did Nehemiah say in Nehemiah 8.10? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Do you have any joy? Well, let it show. Shout for joy. I pastored a place, and this man was not a member, but he'd get real excited in some of the singing, but he didn't want to do that. 
So he'd do this. You're going to just be joyful? Are you going to shout for joy? <laughs> I don't know. And then I thought some, some people like to say, Amen. I'm glad we got people that say, Amen. Shout for joy. Be joyful in thee. And talking about the Lord. Be joyful in God. You know, people look at quote unquote Christians today and they think, why would I want to be one of those? Those people are miserable. They're frowning all the time. They're unhappy. They're constantly complaining. Things aren't right at church. Things aren't right in my life. Things are, nah, 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 nah. Right? Be joyful. Amen. You know, I really credit our mother for giving me the sense of humor that I have. And sometimes it's a little warped, but I credit her for that. And she just taught us to be happy. Dad did too, but dad, you know, he liked to worry a little bit. I'm glad I didn't get that. <laughs> but we just had joy in our home. And we had joy at church. I know I'm going a long time this morning. I may preach that hour finally. But I told you, I'm standing up here a frustrated preacher, a frustrated pastor. I want us to be like the Lord wants us to be. Not like the church down the street. You know what? I, 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 this sounds ugly to say, but I could care less what's going on down there. God called me to pastor this church and to preach to this church. I've got to address somebody on live stream right quick. Brother Grumpy, this is not about you, okay? <laughs> but a griping, grumpy believer is not good advertising for the Lord. Now, Brother Grumpy is called Brother Grumpy because of his gravelly voice, okay? Not because he's grumpy. <laughs> rejoice in the Lord always, Paul said. And again, I say rejoice. Amen. Somebody said, when the final amen is said, I will rejoice, right? And then verse 12 tells us why we need to rejoice. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous with favor, wilt thou compass him as with a shield or compass him as with a shield. We serve a God who will bless us. He can and will show his love for us. And Jude told us in the book of Jude, that I think it's verse 24 or whatever it is, verse 21, he said, keep yourselves in the love of God. Amen. Just keep yourselves. That doesn't mean keep God loving you and that doesn't mean keep on loving God. He says, keep yourselves in a position where God can show all of the love that he has for you. That's all it means. God will encircle or surround us, compass us with his favor, with his delight, his satisfaction, his grace, his goodwill, as with a shield. We serve a God who loves his children. We serve a God who wants to bless his children. We serve a God who wants to bless his churches. Sometimes we put ourselves where we can't be blessed, just like children with parents. We need to keep ourselves where God can show. You know, my mind cannot imagine, comprehend the amount of love God has for me personally or for this church. Oh, I know the love of God. Yeah, yeah. No, we don't. Amen. Our human thinking cannot grasp. I mean, you think about this. Here's a perfectly holy God 
who even though he knew man was going to sin, he made him anyway. Even though he knew it was going to cost him his only begotten son, he made that man, put him on the earth, and when he sinned, the first thing God does is kill a lamb. I'm sorry, kill an animal. I think it's a lamb. And cover Adam and Eve's nakedness with the skin of that lamb. And shed blood. I mean, why? How great is that love? And then he said, I'll go. I'll pay the price. The song, I can't think of the name of the song, but talks about the love of God. He said, the writer said, demands my soul, my life, my all. And that's what that kind of love demands out of me and demands out of you as children. God, well, I need to hush. Y'all, y'all have been very good. I give you an A for deportment this morning. Wasn't quite that way in Sunday school, but we, that's a different story. But this psalm shows David coming to the Lord in the morning, receiving the strength and joy he would need to make it through the day against many adversaries. And folks, that's what we need. You know, somebody said, and you've probably seen this on Facebook, Lord, I'm coming to you, and so far today, I, I haven't fussed at anybody, I haven't griped with my wife, I hadn't, you know, all this. but I'm about to get out of bed, Lord. <laughs> now I'm really going to need your help. Well, yeah, we're going to need God's help in this world, especially today, as we go through this world. David knew he could trust in God, and all of us who are saved know we can trust God, folks. He's done the greatest thing that could happen. He has saved us. People say, oh, this is the greatest event in life. The greatest event in your life is when you come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And the Apostle Paul reminded the Corinthians of this. He said, a great door is opened unto him, but he had many adversaries. And we have a great door of opportunity today. We have a great opportunity. But there are many adversaries we're safe under God's protection. We know he's going to surround us on every side. His presence is a defense to us, just like the hedge you put around Job. We're under the umbrella of his, his love and his protection. And we just need to share that with other people. Listen, you don't have to be a seminary graduate to witness to people. Well, if I knew what the preacher knew about the Bible, I'd know. You don't know that. Here's what you have to know. I was a lost sinner separated from God by my sin. I was going to hell and I deserved it, okay? But God loved me. And God sent his, and you can tell people this, and God sent Jesus to die on the cross as a sacrifice for my sin. He was buried, he arose, he went back into heaven. And I turned to God, that's repentance. And by faith, I applied the shed blood of Jesus and God saved my soul and he will do the same thing for you. You don't have to be the Holy Spirit and convict a heart. Let the Holy Spirit do his job. That's where we get in trouble. We try to do the Holy Spirit's job instead of just backing off. Give our testimony and back off and let God work. We'd be amazed at what God does. Let's stand, please.